All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all introducing Jeffrey Kay, our old friend and great reporter, a retired psychologist and author of Cover Up at Guantanamo. And he's got this great new one at Medium. It's Jeff-K with a Y dot medium dot com. Secret plan revealed. CIA told to destroy those supporting communist germ warfare myth. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, Scott. Thanks very much. I'm doing great. I hope you're doing good, too. I'm happy to be here. Great, man. Good to talk to you again. And another just knock them dead piece from you here on America's biological war in Korea. Now, so what we're talking about here is the plan uh, that was eventually implemented, I guess, to uh, smear yeah. and destroy anyone who um, said that it was true that America used right. biological warfare in the Korean War. So can we rewind a step and start with how you know that it's really true and not just a bunch of commie propaganda? Because, of course, the KGB uh, made up all kinds of lies and forged documents and did all kinds of things to wage you know, they're part of the propaganda war against the United States during the Cold War. And that sounds just like a commie thing to do would be to pretend that America would do such a dastardly thing, right? Right. Well, that's certainly, and don't forget the brainwashing of the pilots. That's right, the Manchurian um, candidates. You know, the, the Manchurian candidate. And in a way, that's where this starts for me, because I was trying to track down years ago these brainwashed confessions because I wanted to see them. I just wanted to see how fantastic and outlandish they were. I wanted to compare them to the confessions happening in Guantanamo, the CIA black sites, because you know the New York Times was telling me these false confessions were predicated and rather created in the same manner in which the Chinese commies had uh, um, forced uh, false confessions of the use of biological warfare during the Korean War. This has been repeated over and over again. I'm sure many of your listeners have even heard that. I believed it myself. I said, okay, that's not going to... Originally, I just said, let me just see the confessions. See, I, I had a personal interest and a professional interest, if you will, because I, as your, some of your listeners may know, I, I was working with uh, uh, torture victims at the time. At least part of my, my psychology practice was to involved in uh, the assessment and sometimes psychotherapy with uh, torture victims who had come to the United States, not torture victims of the United States, but from a multitude of different countries around the world had come to a treatment center uh, in San Francisco called Survivors International. And mm -hmm. other, there are other treatment centers throughout the U.S. And, um, you know, anyway, I'd, I'd become involved in that. So the torture story, when it broke after 9-11, and the Iraq War uh, was of, of a lot of interest. So I, I wanted well, to see and, those confessions. But, and isn't it right, yeah. Jeff, that, I mean, people say torture doesn't work, but that assumes your premise there. If your premise is getting the truth, then no, it doesn't work. But if you're just trying to get someone to say what you want them to say, then it works great. So in other words, 
the myth of the myth here has a solid foundation that if you torture an American pilot severely enough, he'll admit to anything to make the pain stop, just the same as anybody else would. Well, that's... The that's same way the story, Abu Zubaydah but, said that Saddam Hussein was working with Osama bin Laden. Right, right. So you get, you don't, you know, the, the problem, what anybody says, whether they're being tortured or not, is a matter of the truth value of their statements is, is part of the art of interrogation and analyzing and what, what it said in interrogation. But it's a much more nuanced story than that, because, you know, again, my first encounter with any torture victim was when I was still a, a trainee psychologist uh, at a student health center in the Bay Area. And um, I had someone uh, from a Latin American country, I want to say which country, and uh, um, they had been captured and tortured and, in fact, did reveal the names of some of their cohorts uh, and comrades and uh, felt horrific guilt over it. And that was the reason, still, years later, that they had come to see me or to see a, somebody to talk to about this. So... Actually, the truth is, people do uh, will say false confessions, some of them, and some of them will give up um, actual material. Um, in, uh, um, in in terms of the Korean War, the, the story becomes even more nuanced than that because there was the morale of the U.S. Army was was uh, very poor, and that includes even in portions of the Air Force or Marine Air Force, Marine Air Flyers. Um, who repeatedly have said, said at the time, or some of them did, uh, such as Colonel Frank Schwabel, who was the, the highest, second highest ranking POW at all in the Korean War, and the highest ranking Marine POW, um, that you know people were were really deep, you know upset when they learned that the U.S. was using biological warfare. Anyway, there were a spate of confessions. I finally did find them after years. Main point is though, you're right. There has been tons of controversy for decades over whether or not. Um, there were ever a germ warfare weapons were used in the Korean War. And it's kind of remained that way until in 2010, the CIA released uh, hundreds of, of, of documents as part of a 60th anniversary of the Korean War uh, thing um, in conjunction with the, Truman's, uh, the Truman Library. And I, I, just, I, I stumbled upon this myself around 2015, about five years later, and uh, apparently another researcher, uh, Nicholson Baker, also came across some of these documents. And looking at them was quite shocking because these were uh, communications intelligence reports, um, highly classified, very much uh, only need to know, higher than top, you know, even if you have top secret clearance, you had to have special top secret clearance uh, to see these documents. And what they were, were again, CIA analysts reading the reports of the predecessor of, to, of today's NSA, National Security Agency, then called the Armed Forces Security Agency, who were, of course, eavesdropping in and trying to break the codes. You know, the, crypt, you know, the, crypt, the cryptologists were sitting there listening to radio, radio communications of their enemies in the communist camp, right, in the North Korean and uh, Chinese military forces. And then they were saying what they were hearing, and then they passed that on to the military and, you know, intelligence uh, uh, bosses who want, who want that information. And so here we are 60 years later, and then about even more, 65 years later, really, so about anyone really looks at these. And what are they saying? They're saying, we're being attacked by biological weapons. We need, you know, we can't move. Our forces, you know, if we don't get the food in here, I mean, it, was, it, was, it seems like it had some successes at first, this air campaign. 
See, there had been there was an air campaign that began in January of 1952, which the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Marine Corps um, uh, were dropping all sorts as part of a kind of a field field tests of all sorts of different um, attempts to have biological biological weapons, and apparently a lot of these uh, weaponry came from. Uh, the design of, or, or in fact, crafted by uh, Japan's former biological warfare unit, people at Unit 731, Unit 100, etc., under Shiro Ishii, General Shiro Ishii, um, who was a war criminal. What do you and mean they the weren't States, all hanged after the war? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. The United States made an agreement. They rushed in. They heard. They got the intelligence that during World War II, the Japanese biological warfare unit was huge. It was doing tons of research, and it had already begun utilizing it in the field, killing uh, arguably somewhere between 100 and 500,000 people in their own field trials. In other words, bi you know, biological warfare attacks uh, by plague, um, cholera, et cetera, dysentery on a various population in China. And uh, the U.S. tracked these people down and they, uh, uh, they offered them amnesty from war crimes if they would work for Fort Detrick. In other words, work for the United States Biological Warfare Program. And I say work for, mainly they wanted them to give them their data, give them their, their biological samples, talk to them about the design of their weaponry. And, that, and they did all of that. And, uh, and perhaps some of them we still, you know, went to work for the U.S. government in this capacity. Because it certainly looks that way, because from the, uh, even though the U.S. had a biological warfare research program, and had since World War II, um, it had, by the time the Korean War had come along, you know, their grandiose idea of, of major of, of, of bombs, and they, they were designing cluster bombs and using all sorts of different scientifically derived weaponry and, and how to use it the way only the Pentagon can do these things, you know, just wasn't ready for prime time. They, they, it, it, they barely had some pilot plants going to create some of this material. With the exception of biological uh, um, organisms to be used against crops, those were ready, and they were already beginning to deploy them. In fact, they were forward deploying them against the Soviet Union in, uh, in, a, in something called Project Steelyard, hardly ever talked about. Nicholson Baker, who I just mentioned a little earlier, has written about it in his book, Baseless. But, um, and, and this they, is they, the guy that wrote they, Human Smoke about the origins of World War II in Europe, right? That's right. Brilliant yeah. guy. Man, that book is something Brilliant else. Guy. I just read that a few months ago. And pff. Anyway, uh, it go is. ahead. It is. Yeah, he's, a, he's an excellent writer, too. Yeah. Anyway, they, they forward deployed, uh, but I found uh, the document. You, know, I've come, you can only rely on secondary sources so much, uh, um, and you need to see the documentary material. So when I saw the documentary material, for instance, about uh, Project Steelyard, I could see that forward, you know, they were forward deploying biological bombs in England and in Libya, Libya Wheeler Air Force, Wheelers Air Force Base, you know, to be, you know, to drop uh, on, on, on Russia. That was, it was top secret. Um, the, the biological warfare camp, you know, the documents uh, of which there, I found at least two dozen specifying that, you know, and this was of course given up by the CIA. I mean, I say given up, voluntarily posted by the CIA. I don't know that they looked that carefully, uh, you know, although there must be many more documents um, about this. So perhaps they did, and they just they tried to stop the leak out. I think I, I looked one time, I can't remember how many uh, documents they released, something like 
600 or so and, and uh, of these communications intelligence files, and only in about 25 of them or two dozen had uh, a, you know discussion of the attacks by the U.S. Um, that's still a lot, but, you know, and certainly out of the total tonnage of bombing in, in Korea, which was massive, and, and they dropped more bombs on, on North Korea than they did on Europe in World War II, and, um, you know, just, just decimated that country. So in a way, you look at the biological warfare, well, how evil is that compared to everything that was going on, the napalming, the, the bombing of the cities, the, you know, uh, the, the killing of civilian populations. But, uh, but it, biological weapons are, you know, are a special form of, of weapon of mass destruction. We see what's happened already, the kind of chaos society was put in when one organism, however it came about, uh, the, the SARS, you know, COVID-2 um, that's causing COVID-19 um, has caused in the world. So you can, you know, imagine how dangerous all this biological warfare stuff is. And the pilot, they, they, they didn't like it either. Yeah. Well, and I'll so, tell you what, I mean, this is part of the history of World War II is that's how you know how bad the Japanese empire was is because this is what they did to China. Mm-hmm. That's what proves that oh, we're on the side of the angels fighting against pure evil. Yeah, well, if only it were so simple. But I, but what the Japanese did do, of course, was truly evil. In the, right. In the yeah, yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to rationalize the Japanese. I'm just saying oh, no. we're putting ourselves in the same boat with them. I mean, you read about them dropping vats of fleas infected with bubonic plague over Nanking. Like, I don't know how effective that was, but that they tried that makes yeah. them absolutely some of the worst humans who ever lived. Then Truman hired them. And put them to war in Korea. Yes, yeah, it's That's unbelievable. Pretty much what happened? And it had the reason they did this, of course, was this. Some of your listeners may, you know, the, the history of the Korean War isn't widely known. It was just known that it happened. But very briefly, for your listeners who don't know, in 1950, I mean, there have been uh, border battles going on between North, uh, the 38th parallel, North and South Korea, for for some months, if not even a few years between the two regimes, one initially set up with the support of the Soviet Union, the other set up with the support of the United States, one capitalist and the other nominally socialist or communist. And um, finally, uh, the, the, the war, full-scale war broke out. And by the way, I'm sorry like, to interrupt here, but let me just tell people yeah. real quick so you guys can, uh, you know, put this issue to bed real quick. Who really started the Korean War by Justin Raimondo? from July 2013. Mm-hmm. Forget the Trumanite mythology, he says. And this is right. the true story. America and the South started it. And, of course, then just yep. pretended that history began yesterday when the North invaded the South. Oh, yeah. If anything, was a defense, you know, they, they, you know, it was either North invade or be invaded. Um, they, and, in fact, they already were beginning their South invasion. Of, and they, they were slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people. In the way, anyone who who even smelled of being a leftist in South Korea was being you know was being gunned down or imprisoned. And this and, was essentially uh, the Vichy government awesome. that had served Japan during the occupation, and then the Americans absolutely yes. huh? they came in. America came in and set up a, a military government. They ran the United States and South Korea for a couple of years after World War II. Then they turned it over. Oh, and then they, and in that process, they repressed the the, the localized. People's uh, 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 republics that were being set up and governments after the the Japanese who had colonized Korea had, were forced to flee and were defeated. And um, anyways, and it's a tremendous story in and of itself. Bottom line for your listeners is um, 
uh, to go back to the, oh, I was talking about the Korean War. The United States was, uh, uh, the Koreans came in, they swept the South Korean army aside. They, they, um, the, the Americans came back and counterattacked it uh, with a big invasion at Incheon. They were pushing the North Koreans back to the Chinese border. Then the Chinese uh, came in to the aid of the North Koreans and swept the Americans back across the 38th parallel, back and forth. Seoul itself was occupied and reoccupied by different forces four or five times in a matter of a year. So um, in the context of these defeats, when the United States was being rolled back by the Chinese, for instance, you know, they they started thinking about weapons of mass destruction. They thought about nukes, but uh, Russia had, uh, Soviet Union had recently uh, exploded uh, atomic weaponry, and they were kind of afraid of that. So uh, the idea was that uh, biological weapons could sow chaos and destruction in the rear and, and destroy the supply lines. That was the whole idea of, of the J Chinese and North Koreans in Korea. Um, it didn't work. Uh, for the most part, and uh, there can be a whole story uh, written about that, but people have, in fact, written about the massive public health campaigns. Even in my own reporting on this, looking at the documents, that you can, um, from the intelligence reports, you can, uh, there's an episode where, you know, North Korean uh, health officials go out to, to, to investigate charges of an attack by biological weapons, and they say, no, this wasn't an attack. This was a false alarm. This was you know, flies in a manure um, pile of manure. And, you know, so they were they were concerned about determining what the extent of the attack was, what they were being attacked with, what treatments worked well. They needed to educate the troops. It's all a fascinating story, and I've written about it. What you called me on here today to talk about, of course, was what had the aftermath. So it's the Chinese and the North Koreans. I'm sorry Soviet to jump in here again, Jeff, but I just wanted oh, to reiterate yeah. that the real key yeah. here, as you were saying there, because there's a lot of information about an obscure topic here. I just want to make people make sure people are yeah. caught up. The, uh -huh. the real breakthrough here was you and these other authors, too. You got your hands on the CIA reports of them reading the proto-NSA eavesdropping of Korean radio transmissions, where in Correct. real time they're saying, oh, my God, we're being attacked by germs. And yeah. so there's no... There's essentially not much room for interpretation here as far as the CIA, whoever, uh, you know, wrote up these documents was essentially just a stenographer taking notes on what they were getting from these electronic intercepts. There's not much spin involved anywhere in here. The only Absolutely. thing that that's noticeable or, or notable about it is that they were kept top secret for so long and they finally were yeah. released. Right, mm -hmm. or at least some of them were finally released. I and then, there are more. is it is it just absolutely silly to say that? Well, maybe the Koreans were just pretending because they knew they were being eavesdropped on. This kind of thing. It's worth bringing up, I guess. Of course, they didn't know they were being eavesdropped. They were always doing countermeasures. It would be as if, yeah, they put aside their own. They would have had to put aside their own defensive measures to stop um, uh, the U.S. military or uh, from eavesdropping on their military communications. In every war, this is going on, right? There's, there's, it's called signals intelligence or communications intelligence, and there's a cat and mouse game. And I, you know, they, I've written about this, and so even has the CIA about how back and forth, you know, sometimes they would be able to get the communications, and sometimes they wouldn't because of effective countermeasures by the communists. And so you would have to imagine that if they wanted to seed all their military communications with um, tales of biological warfare for propaganda purposes that were never released for decades. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pass the smell test. You know, uh, no, they, they, these are real communications. Um, in fact, no historian 
and no uh, no member of the government, no commentator at all, has since I've been writing about this since I first published it a couple of years ago, has stepped forward to say that I was wrong, and here's why: not one. And I've written to tons of people behind the scenes. They go, "Oh, Jeff, no, it's got to be this. It's got to be that." No one's no one will, and I I shoot them down, and no one has dared come public because they know that it's absurd. It's like saying uh, the emperor has no clothes, right? And everyone finally sees that, and then someone else comes out and go, "No, no, I see clothes there. No, there aren't. You know, this is you know this this was a, this was biological warfare. Mm-hmm. The, the total dimensions of it aren't totally known." And, you know, everything that happened in regards to it, obviously a lot is still secret, but we do know that it happened. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the key to understanding all these other pieces of information we had about it. Like, for example, the confessions of these pilots who they said, yeah. oh, they were tortured or even completely brainwashed, right? MK Ultra, mind control, mind slave, right. you know, completely hypnotized, you know, inhuman takeovers of their brain. This is, isn't this where the term brainwashing comes from? It was yeah, really like it was used. A CIA term. Yes. Yeah. They invented the term. Edward Hunter, one of their contract kind of journalists. Invented the term brainwashing, and we use it colloquial now. But uh, colloquially now, but the way they meant it then was as though this was actually possible to completely wash someone's brain and completely rewire them and make them this kind of automaton, like in the Manchurian Candidate, right? Right, and, and it was their dream, you know. And they were there was a whole the CIA was working hard on this even before MK Ultra. At the time of the Korean War, the project that they were using was called uh, Artichoke. Project Artichoke, renamed from an earlier Project Bluebird and all this stuff. Even the military was experimenting with their own stuff in the late 40s called Project Chatter. All of these things were about finding chemical and uh, uh, psychological and psychiatric and sometimes physical means to break down a human being's psyche and to implant, if they could, other information in their brains, to create amnesias. Uh, This is still something of great interest to the I could go into to the CIA to this day, as revealed in a 
um, uh, as came out in some of the uh, documents around the, I think we've talked about this in the past, um, from the Enhanced Interrogation Program, where um, acolytes of the CIA in modern times and following that were very interested in the idea of creating amnesias in uh, people. But anyway, so what they did, so there was, a, you know, the propaganda that the Soviets and the uh, Chinese and the North Koreans were putting out was kind of effective. Um, and it also caught the attention of some very est- mainstream establishment figures um, and uh, peace forces around the world were beginning to take notice as well. There were, you know, uh, the the dean, the second ranking member of the Anglican Church in, in uh, England had gone to China to check it out, said he saw the, the you know, he saw the, the stuff happening, talked to, to tons of people. These are establishment church people, right? And they were telling him about the biological warfare, and he came back to England, and thousands of people were coming to see him. The same with another uh, a missionary who returned, a Canadian missionary who returned to Canada, and you know, eight thousand people came out to hear him speak in Toronto, you know, in 1952. Uh, um, yeah, and so the U.S. government was, you know, hearing all of this stuff, and uh, they worried about the effects of. of, of the truth coming out about the biological warfare. This is a major war crime, right? The U.S. was supposed to be the good guys, right? And uh, this is a vicious war. So what happened was in 19, you know, uh, the propaganda just wasn't working. They wanted other countries to, to do things for them, and it just wasn't working. Even even U.S. scientists, they, they went to the head of the, uh, 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 what is it, the National Science Board or whatever it was called. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on it right now. In the U.S., but his name was Dev, Devin Bronk. B-R-O-N-K, and he was, you know, a top U.S. scientist, and, and they said, you've got to write something about this, about how this report put out by, uh, the, uh, uh, chaired by the British, famous British scientist, uh, Joseph Needham, was just a bunch of, bunch of hooey, and it's no good scientifically, and he wrote something up, but it was so weak and so milk toasty, um, they couldn't even use it. Why? Because it wasn't, it was, it was good science, and they had interviewed hundreds of people. And they'd and gone to sites. Even today, that report, the internet by an organization called the International Scientific Commission, is belittled and lies are said about it. Um, so the U.S. government has done its best to um, hide, dissemble, you know, manufacture false information about. And now we're talking about something even worse because the, the document I found, which was a, a, called the Basic Plan for U.S. Action to Destroy and counter-exploit the Soviet bacteriological warfare myth, in which such document talked about neutralizing, right, and overriding and destroying so-called propaganda instrumentalities. But in another part of the document, which later was suppressed and rewritten, they talked about the urgent need to attack persons and groups who had bought into this myth, the myth being that biological weaponry was used. And in fact, within a few weeks after this report came out, a dissident apparently within the Fort Detrick itself, um, Frank Olson, a, a name I'm sure many people are aware of, was murdered precisely because he was a security risk. Not only did he reportedly uh, disagree with some of the uh, horrific experiments that were going on at that time around this MK Ultra artichoke kind of interrogation, which involved the murder, even reportedly, of some uh, prisoners in, in Europe. Uh, but also, um, he had been working in the Special Operations Division at Fort Detrick on the biological warfare stuff. And um, as I said, a lot of people within the military weren't happy about what was going on with the biological warfare. 
In fact, my previous article to this, the one where I discussed Project Steelyard, I was surprised to come across uh, um, that where the head of the American Biological Warfare Effort, which is run through the Army, uh, uh, Army's Chemical Corps, it was called, at Fort Detrick, um, a guy by the name of uh, General Boleyn, uh, wrote a, a, a note to the Secretary of the Army in late 1951, in December of 1951, saying, what's going on here? You're cutting our, our, our special funding, our special secret funding at this crucial time. We need to have this. What in the hell are you doing? And in fact, they did reinstitute the secret funding for them. Um, my secret funding, I mean, it was outside of normal appropriations or uh, yeah, appropriations that you get to finance your military or spy stuff. This was special pipeline that went through to get what they needed. Um, and But if someone at the munitions board of the U.S. Army, and I think this was the kind of uh, bureaucratic uh, stuff that was in craft that was being thrown up against you know, to slow down the biological warfare effort because I think some people were against it inside the Army. I mean, when I say the Army, I mean, excuse me, the military in general. And uh, so with, with no explanation at all, on the very eve of what we now know, was the beginning of the larger scale field testing and bombing about with using biological weapons that began in either late December or early January 1952 or late December 1951, um, you know, suddenly uh, the appropriations to make a secret um you know, the secret funding that they were getting to do this was, was, was being with, withheld from them. That was put back, but I think it's symbolic of the, I mean, not just symbolic, it's indicative of the kinds of internal conflict that was going on around the biological warfare, which is, uh, if you look at the kind of, well, even the documentation we still have from that time, it's quite evident. As, as one um, high Air Force official told an Air Force historian writing up this history of what went on, only a few years later, in the, in the mid-50s, um, said, you know, no one came out of the biological warfare program smelling like a rose. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the... Uh, in the other words, is, they'd all, he's admitting they'd all killed innocent people. <laughs> nice way to say that, yeah. You know, so, the, you know, this plan, you know, you're, I'm sure people are familiar with COINTELPRO. This was the FBI, but also CIA was involved at times. And plan, uh, a campaign to uh, disrupt and uh, um, uh, destroy, you know, uh, dissident factions within the United States. Where the civil, it was aimed against the civil rights movement. It was aimed against the Communist Party at that time, also the Socialist Workers Party, the two largest, you know, socialist or ostensible communist groups in the United States at that time in the 50s. Um, it was aimed against the later against the American Indian movement. It was aimed against individuals like Martin Luther King and, it, and arguably involved assassination. I mean, there was, during the church committee hearings, you know, there were discussions about assassination units, um, et cetera, that the, you know, run by the CIA. And the story of, of how they, you know, so this was about repressing the information and it's probably been, unless you want to think about the JFK stuff, but it's probably since the biological warfare campaign was much larger than whatever even the conspiracy was to in, in terms of what was involved in doing it than, than anything around JFK. I mean, you had a, a massive military campaign that involves, you know, people training and uh, um, delivering weaponry and, and uh, try, uh, experimenting with how to use it and training you how to use it and covering up the use 
you know, uh, um, there were a number of people involved, hundreds and hundreds of people who were involved in this, you know, biological warfare campaign. And uh, one thing they did, you know, so I've been mapping how this was all covered up. And it's, I think it's very instructive for people today because the kind of ways in which the U.S. did this are the same ways they continue to do it. We just mentioned COINTELPRO, but continue even to this day. Um, and, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, um, throwing into disrepute the critics of the U.S. government one way or another or eliminating them or removing them if they can if that's what's necessary. And um, so really, this was the beginning, in a sense, my way of thinking, to COINTELPRO. So one thing they did, and I've documented this, is they, um, and in fact, this began with the beginning of the Korean War. The United States government instituted a program in which they, uh, first of all, they had to stop information flow from happening from other parts of the world, particularly communist parts of the world. In those days, we're talking about, you know, Soviet Union and China, basically, and North Korea. And uh, what they did is they instituted a massive mail interception program so that all but first-class mail, which was subject to being opened, it was a, that was a different program. They were opening people's mail. But I'm talking about the destruction of material sent by mail, which is in those days what you did, newspapers from abroad, magazines, journals, films, you know, uh, records, et cetera, uh, you know, audio records. Um in which, you know, to make sure that nothing came in, uh, and, and hundreds of thousands of, of, of pieces of, of uh, media material coming from so-called Iron Curtain countries were being destroyed every month for years, for decades, until the, it took it to the, the Supreme Court to declare that illegal in 1965 before it really ended. So we're talking about 15 years of, of destruction. So that was one way they did this. They destroyed you know, they, they, they kept uh, people in the United States from having, uh, uh, getting the information. They suborned a certain percentage of the uh, journalist class in, in America and, and made them either assets of the CIA or outright CIA or FBI agents. They, um, and then, of course, there were the dirty tricks and things that you would do. There was the COINTELPRO. And then it was just a massive overt propaganda campaign of setting what the narrative would be. And that's what's all laid out, if you go back to 1953, in this national plan to combat the Soviet bacteriological warfare myth, of which the basic plan, which, which broke down, they had a national plan, which really broke down into two sub-plans. One plan was aimed against destroying those propagating the idea that the U.S. had used biological warfare, and the other program was a plan to uh, promote and make sure everybody knew about how barbaric the Soviets were and what they were doing to the prisoners of war in Korea and uh, using that as, as propaganda. Um, particularly, it was to change the POW narrative because the POW narrative uh, uh, the, coming from the bacteriological or biological warfare material was that U.S. prisoners were telling in quite quite, quite a lot of detail, by the way. I, I You finally can, and today you can read the confessions, you can see they're quite detailed. They're, they're very, you know, people of different ranks write about only what they know. So the lower rank people write about their, you know, as they experienced it, somebody who, you know, was a navigator in a plane versus what they're, what they were instructed to do versus the guy who was in charge of armaments, you know, and, uh, you know, talked about his responsibilities and where you, where they got the weaponry and where it came into the country. And a separate person from the top, you know, at the top levels where they caught a couple of top guys talking about the discussions in the Pentagon, 
discussion among generals about what they would do. Um, so these these were uh, you know where the bombers took off from, you know how they uh, understood the campaign, how they wanted to drop a, a string of, of biological weapons basically across the peninsula in something called Operation Strangle. Um, actually, there was something called Operation Strangle. They wanted to military. It was part of Operation Strangle to cut off totally. Um, supplies from the north coming down to fighters and, you know, the 38th parallel and below. Um, and they wanted to put a string of bio, you know, uh, and they did, in fact, uh, a campaign that was, they dropped biological weapons across the peninsula on different, you know, how that was allocated. Anyway, if I was talking about all this, you and I, Scott, back in 1954, we would have been targets, you know, right in the, in the, in the crosshairs of the CIA who was given the covert, operational responsibility for being the people to destroy um, in any covert actions that were going to come out of this. Mm-hmm. Actions that were, uh, when one, you know, when they get a progress report a month later about how the CIA was proceeding about, you know, what they were, excuse me, not a month later, two months later, about the, this basic plan to destroy and counter-exploit the myth, the so-called myth, you know, the, the CIA guy reporting to something called the uh, President Eisenhower's Operations Coordinating Board, which was high-level um, um, organization. Earlier, it had been called the Psychological Strategy Board. This was made up of the director of the CIA and, you know, top undersecretaries of state and defense and, and certain other people occasionally uh, sitting in, um, you know, so they could coordinate their so-called psychological warfare efforts. So the psychological warfare was everything from their standpoint was everything from dropping leaflets on people to dropping germ bombs on people. <laughs> and also all of this fake propaganda and false stories that were laid out there, which of today, almost 90%, obviously not at antiwar.com by the way, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, most of what you read in the mainstream media, of course, a lot of this is washed through, you know, CIA psychological warfare uh, units that tell us what we, you know, what the, you know what the news is. That's why yeah. everyone suddenly you know has the same line on the news every time. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's, it's so it's so blatant. It's funny. Hey y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com, and if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at LibertarianInstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too, like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagenen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new voluntarist handbook and we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon check out libertarianinstitute.org books it's a whole new era we libertarians don't have the power but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right
to make things right. Join us at libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, I once I met a guy who was Army Intelligence who said, uh -huh. listen, everything in the news goes through us first. You don't read anything in there that we didn't decide to leak to mm -hmm. the Times or the Post or the whoever, which I'm sure is overstated, but I'm sure is right. not very overstated. <laughs> you know, I know there's a lot right. of that. You know, it has to be. Right. Yes. Oh, I think exactly. You're exactly right. I think there's a lot of it. I don't think it's 100 percent because that would be incredible. That would be a true totalitarian society. So things leak through, you know, and uh, I have a lot of paranoia about this, this and that, all the stuff's happening at Twitter. But I've been able to do what I do. And, and, and I have not maybe because I'm still small potatoes uh, or maybe because I've, I've done a great I'd like to think it's because I've done a, a kind of an, I think, ironclad job in documenting everything I do, everything I do. And when I publish an article, as I did on this thing about the U.S. plan to destroy people who and groups that, that were pushing the, the biological warfare story back in the early 19, mid-1950s, um, you know, I post the document. You could read it yourself. Maybe Jeff Kay's wrong. Maybe he's full of shit. Let's read it ourselves. Let's read this other document, right? Everything is there so that people can make up their minds themselves. Of course, the mainstream academia uh, normally don't do that, and uh, they're afraid to do it. Instead, they just, you know, pronounce their propaganda line and go with it. So this is all very important, I want to say, of course, because, you know, anybody, you know, I know Ukraine, if outside the United States, the Ukraine war gets, rightly so, I think, the uh, lion's share of the attention. But in, in, in uh, East Asia, you know, the Korean Peninsula, you know, it's still extremely, uh, the Korean War never truly ended. It was just mm -hmm. an armistice. Well, we, they're just out. some missile tests, <laughs> you know. I'm, Speaking I'm of sorry, just, what? in another context, yeah, I mean, there's they have uh, George W. Bush pushed North Korea to nukes, and then Bush and Obama and Trump kind of tried a bit, but brought John Bolton with them, so so much for that. Uh, and then mm -hmm. Biden has kept the Bush and Obama policy of refusing to negotiate in good faith with them whatsoever to try to resolve it. Yeah. They would prefer to have North Korea as an enemy. Yeah. As a potential and enemy. The Second Korean War is not is 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 really something to be feared. The first Korean War was already unbelievably destructive, even even uh, for, you know in in terms of Korea, um, but it wouldn't be confined to the Korean Peninsula. I don't believe anymore. And uh, of course, even the first Korean War wasn't because, in fact, the United States was bombing with with conventional bombs and germ bombs you know, portions of China near the North Korean border and area of Manchuria. So so actually the Korean War had, in fact, mm. led into part of China already. But uh, a second Korean War, especially since North Korea has nuclear weapons, it seems to me would not be confined anymore to uh, just Korea. And uh, and I believe that Kim Jong-un is, is saying the truth when he says the U.S. would pay a very, very, very heavy price for attacking North Korea. And so I don't want to see there be war at all. You know, and I believe that... No, you know, James uh, Mattis said, if we go to war in Korea, it'll be the bitterest fighting of our lifetimes. And he was including Vietnam in that when he said that. Yes, that's right. It would be. And that, you know, and it would be... It would, that, that conflict will definitely come to U.S. shores in the forms of bombs. And um, 
it would be you know it would be hard to believe that it would not in fact end up turning into World War Three. Um, and you know, Jeff, I mean, we really they really were proposing you know H.R. Um, McMaster especially in the Trump years was pushing mm-hmm. four strikes on Korea. It's the bloody nose strategy. What we'll do is we'll just decimate their nuclear weapons program, but not anything else. And then we'll just tell them, yep, that's right. You better just lay there and take it. Otherwise, right. we could expand our list of targets, if you know what I mean. And that then that was his strategy, was that we'll just bomb the living crap out of one part of their government, and the rest of their government will just sit there and take it because they'll know better than to make us actually angry. And, you know, we wow. really came that close to a war, which very well could have included <laughs> nuclear weapons. You know, they could Absolutely. nuke Japan if... Maybe Hawaii, if not the mainland, yeah. they, you know, they claim that, I mean, their, their rockets um, have not gone this far, but they've demonstrated, you know, it all depends on the arc of the, the launch, but they've gone high enough. And, and they've gone high to, enough that they could. I mean, yeah, no to show that they could have hit D.C., even could. America's East Coast. Yeah, and they certainly could hit the West Coast, you know, yeah. the... Uh, um, and again, you know, you know what? I have to say this, Jeff. I'm sorry. Forgive me because it's, uh, forgive me. It's just, it's the 20th anniversary and I can't let it go. This is all John Bolton's fault. He falsely accused him of having a uranium enrichment program when they had bought some old aluminum tubes from Pakistan, but they weren't doing nothing. And he used that to break the agreed framework. Then they put new sanctions. Then they announced the Proliferation Security Initiative, which was their claim right to seize North Korean boats on the high seas. And then they put them in the nuclear posture review on the short list for a nuclear first strike. And only then did Kim Jong-il, in December of 2002, announce that he was going in six months to withdraw from the NPT, kick the inspectors out of the country, and start making nuclear weapons, which is exactly what he did. And now he's got at least a couple of dozen of them, his son does, at least a couple of dozen of them. And that is 100% the fault of George W. Bush and John Bolton and Dick Cheney and their policy, as much as it's the responsibility of Kim Jong-il himself for, you know, mm-hmm. taking them up on their provocation the way that he did. And so I just hate to oh, yeah. have this subject brought up without taking the opportunity to damn those men for what they did. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Although I can't almost see anybody in American, uh, with, with oddly enough the exception perhaps of Trump for a small window of time, but I sometimes wonder what Trump was doing. If he wanted peace, he, he's not, Trump is not, whatever one thinks about Donald Trump, he's not a totally dumb man. He may not be a genius, but he's not a dumb man either. And he certainly knew who John Bolton was. So why he took Bolton there and kind of allowed this to happen, I don't know. Um, you know, to the derailment of, of an, you know, some kind of peace process taking place. But, you know, in this, well, I know, think he surely didn't know the history that I just rattled off. There is the problem that he knew the, the guys. That. He knew the guys tough, but he didn't know that. Like, oh, wait a minute, I get it. You've got a real chip on your shoulder on North Korea, a very specific one. You know, I pr- he probably didn't know that, and yeah. there probably wasn't anybody around to tell him. By the way, well, this Bolton guy hates North be. Korea more than anyone else in America, so you should probably leave him at home. In fact, the second time that they went, I forget which was which: Singapore or Vietnam was first or second, but um, the second time, I think in Singapore, he sent Bolton literally to outer Mongolia at the same time to keep him away. Lesson yeah. learned the hard way, but by then it was too late. Too late, yeah. Well, you know, the, I don't know that, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like the, 
Zelensky in the U.S. about Russia, and today the uh, the Americans towards Vietnam, the, the whole issue of denuclearization means you get rid of all your nukes the way Gaddafi did, and maybe we'll talk about them. Right. You know, or it's like Zelensky saying, Russia, you, you, you withdraw from everything that you've done. Um, going Unconditional back to surrender. And maybe right? we'll talk. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, that's our way of negotiating. Right, exactly. Negotiation means you unconditionally surrender or disarm, yeah. and then we'll con- and we'll talk. Well, speaking of, course, of which, you, nobody was going to do that. You know, I learned this from MASH when I was a kid. My mom always watched MASH when she was making dinner. And wow. um, I remember when Ike Eisenhower got elected, all the guys were really excited that maybe he's going to end the war now, which is what happened, right? But right. So take me back and refresh my memory on... Uh, when he was inaugurated and what his policy was, did it change? And especially, did it change in regards to using germ weapons on these poor people? No, it did not. Of course, he, he was inaugurated in January of 1953, right? The election was in 52. And uh, Eisenhower, was, who supposedly understood that there was uh, a lot of fatigue in the country. And by the way, we know now uh, the morale of the troops in Korea was not great. They didn't, you know, uh, I, one of the documents I came across, this wasn't a major part of my, my story by any means, but uh, um, when they got the first prisoners were returned in something called the Little Switch in March of 1953, of course, Eisenhower would be getting those reports about what what they were finding from the debriefings of the POW, first POWs, is that uh, a lot, most of these people didn't, thought there was little sense in the war. They didn't understand why they were there. And they believed the biological warfare charges of the communists. Although, interestingly enough, they believed it and they thought it was okay. <laughs> they thought, yeah, we should do that in a war. We should use every weapon we have. So, um, but the main point is, though, that they were uh, demoralized. And um, in the U.S., on the battlefield wasn't doing so, so great. They were just ba- barely holding their own. And that was with, you know, the participation of the, the British, the Australians, South Koreans, of course, you know, uh, um, and other units. Uh, other people who the, uh, they called the allies, right? The UN, yeah, it was UN forces, right? Because the Soviet Union right. boycotted the vote on the UNSC. So this is the first UN right. war and the first, you know, completely well major right. undeclared it, it, war. Know. Well, you know, the United Nations Command, which was created in 1950, UNC, still exists today. They have a website. You can go to it. It's all. This is the UN Command that was set up to fight North Korea. Still exists. It was never demobilized. Yeah, and you know, people might remember in the 1990s, American POWs, uh, you know, um, uh, bodies were sent home in UN flag draped coffins, and people were so mm-hmm. upset about that. Which really, it's just the American Empire dressed up in baby blue is all that is anyway. People should understand yeah. that. But at the same time, you see why people are like, wait a minute, whose empire are we serving? If it ain't our flag, right. it's some higher authority than ours. What in the hell? And, and of course, you know, we, they hadn't declared war since based on Truman's uh, precedent. You know, I learned when I was a kid, why in George W H uh, W Bush, how come he's saying he doesn't need a declaration of war? Oh, cause he has a UN security council resolution, huh? But the constitution doesn't say that, you know, and I knew that just as a kid, I was for right. the war cause I didn't care, but I was against yeah. the violation of the constitution. And I knew that Congress voting to authorize it was not the same thing, that they were essentially letting the president decide, which is not how it's supposed to be. 
and in right. concert with foreign powers, the president in in agreement with uh, France and Britain and whoever they decide they're our Congress now to decide whether we get into a war. Yep. Except when they won't, and then we just do a coalition of the willing or NATO or whatever we want instead. Yeah, and that, right. And that's how it goes, or or just the U.S. goes alone, whatever the thing may be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's you know, I think this is the, the whole Korean War issue, and particularly the biological weapons. First of all, I think your listeners have to understand this is the most suppressed story in U.S. history. The reason I can I keep coming up with stuff is because it's like an open field. If you're going to be an investigative reporter, if you're going to investigate stuff and tell the truth and find the documentary material, even though a lot of it is, was destroyed or suppressed, there's still plenty out there to, as I've discovered, that you can pick up that was left on the you know left on the field or you know snuck through FOIA, etc. And um, you know what you're what you're seeing is the true parameters of the U.S. In the national security state, as it was being born um, out of out of the out of World War II, and with the massive acceleration with the Cold War, and uh, and the Cold War really got going with the Korean War. That was when the Cold War became a hot war. That was when the, the CIA grew massively during the Korean War. Um, the CIA is, is all over this kind of stuff, and uh, the military too. And you can see that you know there's a lot more interplay between the military and the uh, CIA, if we ever get the full parameters on the biological warfare story, it in fact will be very instructive to see exactly how the CIA and the military interacted. I just yeah. discovered that there was a unit um, called the, uh, the joint something that um, I found in one of the documents, I, I noted it in the story, um, where you know there's a special Pentagon unit whose job is to give Pentagon or you know Department of Defense um, assets to the CIA when it needs them for its covert action. So they operate very closely together. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the, the whole evolution of the special forces units and special forces command, et cetera, that took place since the Korean War and up through Vietnam, et cetera, to present day, you know, is also part of that story. Um, you know, I think people need to start demanding that you know, the information, you know, there's a whole thing in the press right now because some of the documents in the, uh, from the JFK Assassination Committee aren't being still produced and withheld by the CIA, and that right. still makes headlines. You know, it, it still manages to make the news. But the, what I've written about, it doesn't make the news at all. I, I mean, that's not true of antiwar.com, but uh, for, the mo for the vast majority of yes. uh, uh, people don't know about this. To the degree they do, they believe, as I did at the start of this, that there was some kind of uh, commie brainwashing torture thing that went on, made people confess to crazy stuff 70 years ago. And that's a, that's a story from 70 years ago. It has no relationship to now. Yeah. But in fact, it's and all it's, about you know what, just like movie tone news, whenever you watch old newsreels, you're like, geez, pretty blatant propaganda, all the trumpets in the background and everything. It's just so stupid. So anybody with a 21st century media mind looking back at the claims from back then, obviously it's pretty easy to see right through what they're doing in a way that, you know, less sophisticated people back then would not have been able to tell. But listen, um, we're just right out of time, but uh, that last little bit of yours made me wonder whether you had ever teamed up with your old buddy, Jason Leopold to do a full FOIA onslaught on this and try to get more. 
No, I, I haven't. His career kind of went in a different direction than mine, and his his interests went in a different yeah, direction. Yeah, Russiagate, trutherism, and all the rest of that, I know. Yeah, so so, so really not. I, I think he, he follows me, and I follow him, but uh, but we haven't really teamed up anything like that. Uh, yeah. I, there's a little cooperation still around the Guantanamo story a few times. He you know, give me access to some photos that he had. and uh, You know what? I bet he'd do you the favor of helping you out on some FOIA stuff if he's that good at it, you know? Uh-huh, yeah. It well, might be worth a try. I still love the guy. Okay. What can I say, man? I, you know, I know him from a long time ago, and he's had some he's really terrible uh, failures, but he's done some good stuff, too, and I don't know. Yes, yes, Absolutely. listen i'm sorry i'm out of time here dude i gotta run but thank you so much for doing the show and for your attention this important story this real history that someday is going to be included in the history probably uh in great measure due to your work so thanks jeff thank you very much scott thanks all right you guys that is jeffrey k check him out at medium it's jeff-k.medium.com secret plan revealed cia told to destroy those supporting communist germ warfare myth, which was not one. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.